Well, in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Luke writes, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Have you ever had an ambition? Something that you wanted to do with all your heart? You spent long hours practicing and prepping, and just before you were to perform, someone said, you aren't quite ready. Years ago now, God gave me a song. It was a little worship tune that popped into my head one day. I decided that I would sing it and teach it to the church. I practiced and practiced that song. In the car, the shower, the office, all day long, I sang my little song. And I was almost ready to teach it to the Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain when I made the fatal mistake of sharing it with my wife. I really just wanted Kathy to tell me how good I sounded. I'll never forget her tender counsel. You can't be serious. You'll embarrass the whole family. God may have given you that song, but he never intended for you to give it to anyone else. Trust me, it was just for you. Well, I swallowed my pride, I received her wise counsel, and I concluded, I just wasn't quite ready. And neither were the disciples. There were 40 days between the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven. And for the disciples, these 40 days were full of unimaginable thrills. They were hanging out with the one who had conquered death. If ever they had doubted that Jesus was God, now, in His very real presence, all those doubts had vanished. They cherished every second that they spent with Jesus. These 40 days the disciples hoped would never end. But you know, they did come to an end. Just before Jesus ascended back to heaven, He gave His disciples new marching orders. He commanded them, Go and make disciples of all nations. 
It was quite a commission for a handful of frightened men who five weeks earlier had tucked tail and run scared. They had publicly denied and forsaken their Lord. Yet if ever there was a time to start over, to reboot, this was it. Their days with the risen Christ had stirred their hearts. I would have expected Jesus to seize the momentum and harness their zeal and take advantage of their excitement and thrust them headlong into the world at that very moment. But that's not what he did. Instead, Jesus does just the opposite. He tells his disciples to return home to Jerusalem and wait. Wait? Why wait? Weren't these men ready? Weren't they qualified? Well, actually, according to modern missionary standards, there's never been 11 more qualified men in all of history. For one, they were educated. For three and a half years, they were homeschooled by the master teacher himself, Jesus. Also, they were experienced. They had witnessed miracles. They had even performed miracles themselves. Jesus had sent them out to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And these were committed men. The disciples had proven their devotion to Jesus. They had left behind houses and businesses and families to follow Him. And finally, these disciples were regenerated men. They were saved. They were born again. You remember in John 20, verse 22, we're told that Jesus breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father had breathed physical life into Adam, the Lord Jesus breathed into His disciples, and they became spiritually alive with the life of God. Here were educated, experienced, committed, and regenerated men. But there was one thing that they lacked. They were missing one entry on their spiritual resume, and it was the power of the Holy Spirit. They had never received the power, the overflowing power of the Spirit. They had the Spirit indwelling them. His presence was residing within them. But now they needed to be immersed or baptized in this supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus knew that His disciples could get only so far riding the rush of sheer excitement. Enthusiasm alone would not be enough to face down the opposition and the persecution and the difficulties that they were sure to encounter. They needed a supernatural burst, a punch of spiritual strength. They needed the power of the Spirit. Jesus knew that in fighting the superpowers of the flesh and the world and the devil, conventional weapons are inadequate. The disciples needed a superpowered arsenal. And thus, before moving them forward, He sends them back to Jerusalem, to wait for the Holy Spirit's power. There's an apocryphal story I once heard about the great NASCAR driver, Donnie Allison. In the Daytona 500, Allison got off to a great start. Yet just two laps into the race, something went wrong. In the first turn, his car stalled out. Allison rolled off the track into the infield. It didn't take long, though, to discover the problem. No one in Donnie Allison's crew had bothered to fill the car with gas. 
Donnie Allison was an experienced, seasoned, successful driver. His car was $250,000 worth of precision and preparation. But the Allison crew made an omission that short-circuited their mission. And this has happened to many Christians and churches. Oh, they sport a fancy spiritual paint job. There's Bible knowledge and experience and even commitment under their hood. But there's no gas in their tank. We'll never fulfill the Great Commission if we're guilty of the Great Omission. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches us that there are three experiences experiences that we can have with God, the Holy Spirit. He is with us. He comes to dwell in us, and He even comes upon us. In John 14, verse 17, Jesus told the disciples, I will give you another helper, that He may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Before we become Christians, the Holy Spirit is with us. He's the hound of heaven, as they call Him. He sniffs us out and tracks us down and convicts us of our sin. He reveals the love of God to us, the love of Jesus, the reality of our sin, our need for a Savior. All that happens as the Spirit works with us. Then once we come to Jesus, the Spirit moves to dwell in us. He takes up residence in our hearts. He becomes our helper. He comforts us and corrects. He changes us from the inside out. He conveys to us God's peace and presence. But there is a third experience that we can have with this same Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that He would come upon us. Here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. More than conviction and comfort, more than just peace and presence, the Spirit gives us power to be His witness. It's not that we get more of God's Spirit. He isn't allocated to us in portions. If you believe in Jesus, you have all of the Spirit residing in you. But there are different experiences that we can have with the Holy Spirit. Here's an illustration for you. Most football teams, they have a water spray on the sideline. It keeps the team cooled down and refreshed. But having water with them isn't the same as getting a drink. To stay hydrated, players need to take a drink of water. They need the water inside them. And a drink is not the same as celebrating with a big Gatorade shower after a victory. Where water is poured out upon the person, a victory necessitates a rushing of water. Water is with them. The water is in them, but then the water comes upon them. It's all water, but it's different experiences that a football player can have with the water. And so it is in our relationship with God's Spirit. He's with us, and He comes to dwell in us, and He can even come upon us. Understand, every true Christian 
has the Holy Spirit residing with them and alive in them. But not all Christians have the Spirit's power resting upon their lives. Corey Timbu once said, It takes two batteries to energize a flashlight. The first battery is regeneration, that is being born again. The second battery is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught that his cousin John baptized or immersed his followers with water, but he would baptize his followers with the power of the Holy Spirit. Here in Acts, the word baptism means to immerse. God wants to overflow us with the power of the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, this experience goes by different names. Baptism, or filling, or pouring out, or coming upon, or as Jesus said here in Acts, the promise of the Father, or rivers of living water, or sealing of the Spirit. The list is long, but the experience is the same. Let there be no confusion. The Holy Spirit wants to come upon believing hearts with supernatural power. The work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration is a secret work. It happens quietly in our hearts. But this filling, well, it's thrilling. Waves of joy flood over our soul. Donald G. once wrote, When you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, you know it, and need no one to acquaint you with the fact you will soon be acquainting them. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was first poured out, on the waiting disciples. It happened suddenly. Acts chapter 2, verse 2 recounts the event. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice this was not an outcome that came upon them just gradually. No, it happened suddenly. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was a point-in-time experience. They were filled in a flash. They were saturated in a second. They were juiced in a jiffy. You know, I've heard people teach, the more you yield, the more He fills. Well, I believe we, God wants us to yield our lives to the Holy Spirit, no doubt about it. But nowhere in the Scripture are we told that the Spirit is poured out upon us incrementally or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a process. To the contrary, the baptism of the Spirit is an event that occurs. It creates a sacred moment. I'll never forget the first time I was baptized with the Holy Spirit. There were a group of kids hanging out on the street corner near my house and one night I drove by, I felt impressed to stop and witness to them of the love of Jesus. Well, after a wrestling match with the Holy Spirit, I, in the end I chickened out. This is what I did. I wanted to be a witness, but I went home that night feeling more like a wimp. I needed to be a bold witness. God wanted me to be a bold witness. I needed the power of the Holy Spirit, and I knew it. I'll never forget getting home at night. I laid face down on the living room floor, and in desperation, I prayed for the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. God, I have to have it. And suddenly, this Holy Spirit came upon me. Jesus infused me with a love that overcame my fears. 
I remember rising up from that living room floor with a new boldness, a new determination to stand for Jesus. I went back down to the street corner and all the kids had left. But the next night I drove by and there they were. I stopped my car, I got out, I shared my faith and several of those kids gave their lives to Christ. And since that time, I've been filled with the Holy Spirit over and over again. It's interesting, the same crowd that's baptized with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 gets filled with the Holy Spirit again in Acts chapter 4. The Spirit's baptism is a point-in-time experience, but it's not a one-time experience. It can be repeated again and again as needed. R.A. Torrey once wrote, We need to be filled again and again with the Holy Spirit. I am sometimes asked, have you received the second blessing? Yes, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and a hundreds besides. And I am looking for a new blessing today. Even if you've been filled with the Holy Spirit before, perhaps God wants to do a new work in your life, even this morning. Trust Him, and He'll fill you afresh. The old hymn should be our song today. Oh, for the Spirit's quickening power. Oh, for a soul-refreshing shower. Oh, for the Pentecostal power. Lord, send it now. And yet people often ask the question, how do I know if I've been filled with the Holy Spirit? What are the evidences of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, let's go back to that day of Pentecost. Several phenomena accompanied the initial filling of the Spirit. First was a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind. A breeze roared through the room. You know, throughout the Scripture, the wind is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, and it's a reminder to us of His sovereignty. Just as it's impossible to predict the changing currents of the wind, likewise, it's impossible to predict the movements of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit always stays one step ahead of us. He's leading the way. He's calling the shots. It's never vice versa. A church effective for Jesus will always be a Spirit-led church. Second, on Pentecost Sunday, there were forked flames of fire that settled over the disciples' heads. Remember when Moses decided to dedicate the tabernacle, and again when Solomon later dedicated the new temple. In both cases, God sent fire down from heaven to burn up the sacrifice. He sent fire upon the sacrifice. The supernatural reign of fire was God's sign that He approved of these new dwelling places, the tabernacle and the temple. And here in Acts chapter 2, God is dedicating another dwelling place. Remember, Pentecost was the church's open house. We now are the spiritual temple of the Holy Spirit. And God followed His pattern by showing His approval on this new house by sending down fire from heaven. This time, though, he didn't consume dead sacrifices. Rather, he empowered living sacrifices, his people. And he sent the fire down upon their heads. It's interesting, the wind and the fire were never repeated in the book of Acts. They seem to be one-time experiences reserved for the dedication of this new spiritual temple. But not so with the third phenomenon mentioned in Acts chapter 2, speaking in tongues. For the gift of tongues was exercised numerous times 
throughout the book of Acts. When the Holy Spirit came upon the believers in the upper room, God gave them the capability to speak in languages other than their own native tongue. In Acts chapter 2, verse 11, Luke describes the miracle as speaking the wonderful works of God. Apparently, the gift of tongues enabled them to supernaturally praise the Lord Jesus. Now, sadly for some folks, speaking in tongues is like a rattlesnake. It's something that you don't want to touch. You don't even want to get close to it. I mean, this is like poison ivy for some people. This is like the ugly girl that had the crush on you. You want to stay away from this as far as possible. I grew up in a Baptist church, and I was scared to death of the gift of tongues. Our pastor wouldn't touch the subject with a 10-foot pole. And looking back, though, I was robbed of a blessing by fear and by ignorance. What is this controversial, this mysterious gift of tongues? Well, the word tongues simply means languages or dialects. The gift of tongues is the spirit-given capacity to praise God or to pray to God in a language other than your own native tongue or any language that you might have learned. In Acts chapter 2, when the gift of tongues was first manifested, we're told the Spirit gave them utterance. The gift of tongues wasn't a skill that they were taught. It was a phenomenon prompted by the Holy Spirit. I've heard of misguided charismatics who offer classes in tongue speaking. They have techniques that they use to try to teach eager believers to speak in tongues. You know, they'll get you alone and they'll say, hey, now close your eyes and loosen up your tongue and just kind of, you know, loosen your mouth there and kind of let your tongue flap up and down and, and just repeat the words, Owa, Tegu. Siam. Now, now repeat it real fast. Owa tegu siam. Owa tegu siam. How about that? And let me say, if you think someone can teach you to speak supernaturally in tongues, you are a goose. Tongues happens when the Holy Spirit enables us to praise God in an unlearned language. It's a supernatural gift. It comes from God. It's a fulfilling experience to praise God freely and uninhibitedly. Of the 5,665 languages in the world today, I know but one. That's English, by the way. And of that one, I know very little. You know, there are 800,000 words in the English lexicon, but the average person's working daily vocabulary is about 7,000 words. And for me, this presents a problem. What happens when I can't find the right word? What happens when I'm at a loss for words? Yet I really want to express what's on my mind or heart. That's when a frustration occurs. See, human beings are like a funnel. The narrow neck of the funnel represents our intellect. The wide base represents our spirit. In the spirit, on the spiritual level, we're capable of experiencing deep feelings and a wide array of emotions. Yet all that we sense spiritually on the spiritual level has to be channeled through a shallow intellect and a limited vocabulary if it's to be expressed. 
See, our narrowness cuts off the flow of feelings, and it ends up bottling up our emotions and strangles our expression. We end up pent up, and therefore we shut up. And this isn't good, for God longs for our praise and our worship. But the Holy Spirit comes to our rescue. He'll fill us up, and He'll shake us up, and then He'll, in essence, pop the cork. And He lets the bubbly of adoration and exaltation spew out. And this is what happens when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and given the gift of tongues. God bypasses our mental and linguistical limitations by placing words in our minds that we don't understand but we trust are the accurate expression of our hearts. Then by speaking those words, we can release all of our pent-up praise. One thing is for sure, the filling of the Holy Spirit often results in abounding joy. As Peter calls it in 1 Peter 1 verse 8, joy inexpressible and full of glory. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're overwhelmed and you're overjoyed. You know, if a person has been floundering spiritually, it's hard for them to grasp the importance of their praise. When your spirit is as dry as a bone and you feel like dust inside, it's difficult to realize why bottled up feelings would be a problem. But when you're filled to overflowing, when expression is bubbling up within you, then the articulation of that expression becomes a top priority. It's like getting lockjaw on your wedding day. It'd be terrible. Imagine being unable to verbalize your love at the very moment when you want to communicate it best. Or think of your favorite football team playing their arch rival. And you're sitting there with your mouth taped shut. It would be torture not to cheer. You'd want to rip off that tape. Well, the gift of tongues is God's way of ripping off the tape. The Spirit fills us with overflowing joy and love and power. Then He loosens our lips to sing God's wonderful praise. Tongues is one evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And who knows, perhaps the Lord may loosen your lips to praise Him today. Another evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not mentioned here in Acts chapter 2, but spoken of elsewhere in Acts, is the gift of prophecy. In Acts 19, when the believers in Ephesus were filled with the Spirit, they were given the gift of prophecy. In other words, they uttered unplanned, unscripted, Spirit-prompted messages that conveyed spontaneously through them by the Holy Spirit. God gave them a message for the people around them, in other words. You know, we get into so much trouble with our mouths, our uncontrolled tongue. It's no surprise that when the Holy Spirit fills us, He shows it by orchestrating our speech and using our tongue to bring God glory and other people encouragement. 1 Corinthians 14 is a chapter that deals with spiritual gifts, and it contrasts the gift of tongues with prophecy. Verses 2 and 3 read, He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. 
clearly tongues is man speaking to God, whereas prophecy is God speaking to men. Sometimes you'll hear an utterance in tongues and someone will give a supposed interpretation that goes something like this, my little children, listen to me. It's as if the tongue is God speaking. Well, it might be a word of prophecy, but it's not the interpretation of the tongue. An unknown tongue is always man praising or praying to God, while prophecy is God speaking to us. Let me say, though, there are examples in the book of Acts where believers are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they neither speak in tongues or prophesy. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 29 and 30 teach us that there are a diversity of gifts and not all of us will receive the same gifts. This includes tongues and prophecy. You can't say the only evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the gift of tongues because Paul is clear that not every believer will speak in tongues. And yet all believers need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I believe there's one sure evidence that does show up every time a believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the love and boldness to be a witness. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, we're told what happened just a few days after the Feast of Pentecost. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. The floors and rafters might not shake today, but God does want to fill each one of us with boldness. God delights in turning wimps into witnesses. When God fills us with His Spirit, His love erupts in our hearts. It's like a volcanic explosion of grace. We're overwhelmed with a love that's not of ourselves, and it causes us to forget our fears. We become oblivious to the opinions of others. The world sneers and jeers and fears no longer intimidate us. We're caught up. We're captured by the love of God. We're intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. In fact, this was the accusation made about the believers on the day of Pentecost. They were so giddy. They were so excited and bold. Some observers mistook them as being drunk. Acts 2 verse 13 tells us, Others mocking said, They are full of new wine. I guess they acted as if they were tipsy. You lose your inhibitions when you're drunk. And likewise, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you no longer care about what other people can do to you. All that matters is you pleasing and glorifying our mighty God. Heard the story of a man named Charlie, town drunk. One day he was inebriated. He was walking down the street when he bumped into the pastor. The pastor scolded him for his drunkenness. But Charlie denied that he even touched the stuff. He argued, he said, I'm not drunk. Why do you think I'm drunk? Well, the pastor stated the obvious. He says, I know you're drunk by the way you're walking down the street. You got one foot in the gutter and you got the other foot on the curb. Well, Charlie looked up to heaven. He lifted his hands and he shouted, well, praise the Lord, I'm healed. I thought one leg was shorter than the other. Let, let me say, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you too will have one foot in the gutter and one foot on the curb. In other words, your passion for God will lift you to heaven, but you'll also have a passion for people that'll keep you on the street, even in the gutter, seeking to share God's mercy and God's love 
to those who need it most. Don't you want to be energized today? Don't you want to be filled and thrilled with the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, if you do, you'll need a little faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones summed up the experience of many Christians when he said, they expect nothing and they get nothing and nothing happens to them. They expect nothing and they get nothing and nothing happens to them. Are you tired of wimping out when God calls you to be a witness? Are you expecting something from God? Are you expecting His power? He wants to give it to you. Let me conclude with Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Jesus promises us there, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? If you want to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to rise up in faith and you need to ask.